So last week we left off with the versification and the chapter divisions of the, of the scriptures. And we learned that there were not verses or chapters until pretty late, the 1500s. And so when we read through scripture, uh, we have to remember that they were written just like a normal person would write a letter without, you know, how many times do you write a letter and you write verse 3 and then you continue and then verse 4 and then continue? You don't do that. So we just have the writings in Scripture as they were written, and we have to sometimes remember that the people that put these verses in and chapters in were doing their best for us to be able to reference these things later, and they were for our own uh, assistance, but sometimes they kind of get in the way. So just remember that if you uh, open your Bible and there's a chapter division or a paragraph indentation or something that may not actually be where the thought begins, so you might have to look up a little, uh, you know, a few lines or, or beneath to see where does the thought begin and end. And so um, that has to do with context. We always want to know where we are in the Scripture. So we want to have context. Remember we, we looked at that daily bread, little... Uh, daily devotion that said, if you worship me, I'll give you the world, basically, out of Luke chapter 4, Luke 5, 4, maybe it was. And it sounds nice and everything until you realize that the verse before that, you realize it was Satan speaking to Jesus, tempting him in the wilderness. So that's context. It adds the entire meaning is different now. So context is so important. And so that's where we left off. So today we'll begin talking about what is the message of Scripture. Now, we've spent two weeks so far in the course... Uh, Understanding and trying to understand, you know, context and things that are important in Scripture, where the books of the Bible are located, what different types of books there are. There's historical narrative and there's uh, apocalyptic literature and there's epistles and different things in Scripture, different types of uh, literature. But what is it all about? We looked at how it's all interactive or it's all integrated. It all tells the same story. What is that story? What does it mean? What's the main message of Scripture? And so this is called a meta-narrative can you all see the slides, by the way? Okay. So it's called a meta-narrative. And this big term here, meta-narrative, it just means the overarching theme throughout the entire Scripture, the, the entire Bible. Remember, it was written over the course of about 1,500 years in different places of the world, three different continents, three different languages, many different walks of life. And it all tells the same story, the meta-narrative, which is about redemption. And so it's about the redemption, our redemption, the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ. And it's not about you, but it's written for you and for us. Some, and we'll get to what I mean by that. I guess I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, so in meta-narrative, I'll read this. The, the words are kind of small. It says, it's an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. Meta-narrative is the big picture or all-encompassing theme that unites all smaller themes and individual stories and building a house. There are many workers doing many different jobs, plumbing, sheetrock, electrical work, roofing, etc. But all those contractors are working toward the same thing, completing the house. The blueprint is the big picture, the meta-narrative that gives meaning to each contractor's work. The plumber isn't fitting pipes to nowhere. He's involved in a larger scheme. And that was from a website called Got Questions, which is a really good website. They have really short, to-the-point articles, um, and this was one that talks about uh, meta narratives. So if you want to go to gotquestions.org or .com, it's it's good reference. So I hope you understand the idea. It's it's uh, an overarching theme. Remember, we put a blueprint of a cathedral up a, a week or two ago about how the Bible is like 
this big structure, and there's different parts of it, but it's, it's all connected somehow. The book of Hosea, you know, that's a, an Old Testament minor prophets. Somehow it works, the, the story of Hosea works into the meta-narrative of Christ saving us, somehow. And if you read through it, you can see that, you know, Hosea was told by God to go marry a prostitute, and, and his, his adulterous wife kept cheating on him over and over, and that's her lifestyle. But that picture is of the lost people of Israel continuously falling into idolatry and spiritual idolatry, worshiping other gods, spiritual adultery. And that's the picture of how we are wayward. We're always just looking for other things until we finally uh, meet Christ. He has determined to save us, at, like a good husband would be determined to stay faithful to his wife. So that's how, the, for the example of Hosea, that fits into this meta narrative. It's not just a random story thrown in there for fun. It's all somehow related to the fact that God saves his people. And so the Bible is about redemption. All the way back in Genesis, the, first, or the third chapter of Genesis, uh, they call this, well, I might get to it. I'm getting ahead of myself. Genesis 3.15, we've heard of this. Uh, after Eve sins and Adam follows her in the same sin, uh, God tells uh, the serpent about the fact that he is now cursed and so is, so is mankind and so is creation. He's, the Lord is speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you <coughs> you." And the woman in between your, <coughs> excuse me, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm going to take a sip of water here. So the Lord is speaking to the serpent and he says, and he's speaking to uh, the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, the sons of disobedience, and her offspring. Well, her offspring here is Christ. He shall bruise your head. And some translations say, crush your head, and you shall but bruise his heel. So Satan, you know, he thought he won when Christ was crucified. But three days later, Christ rose and defeated death, and his, his death atoned for our sins. And so Satan really lost. But he's, he's, dic or he's showing us this from the very first book of the Bible. I will send a Savior. I will send a Messiah. This meta-narrative begins in the Garden of Eden, where the first two people ever were, were uh, created and, and sinned. So from that point on, he promised a Savior from the very first two people. And it's called, this uh, first appearance of the gospel is called a proto-evangelium. And it, proto means first or earliest. Evangel, you can hear the, the, the word evangelist or evangelistic. That means good news. It's the first good news appearance that, we've seen, that we see. It's in Genesis 3. First messianic prophecy of the Old Testament and of the Bible as a whole. So, um, we can see that from the very beginning, it begins this meta-narrative. The overarching theme of the Bible is about how God saves his people. In John 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says something that refers to this. This overarching theme, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus lived under the Old Covenant. They had the Old Testament as their Bible. The New Testament was being lived out. It hadn't been written yet at this point. So the Pharisees thought they knew the Old Testament, and they certainly did. They, they had memorized books of the Old Testament, and, and the entire Torah, some of them memorized so they thought, we find righteousness in the scriptures, the Old Testament, and we are doing the law and doing as much as we can, and we're, we're attaining righteousness by ourselves, our self-righteousness. 
But he says, you search the scriptures, you think that in them you'll have eternal life, but they're talking about me. So I'm here now, I'm, I'm showing these signs because the Father has anointed my message and you should listen to me. You're reading about the Old Testament, all the signs that point to me, all the feasts and the Lord's days, they're pointing to me and I'm here now. So listen to me, but they didn't. And in Luke 24, once Christ had lived his life, he'd, he had died and he rose again already and uh, the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus with Jesus, about a seven-mile walk, and they were, Jesus was telling them, right here, Luke 24, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, what were the scriptures at this point? They were the Old Testament. Because, again, the New Testament was being lived out. And so these are Old Testament scriptures. The Lord's telling the Pharisees, all that Old Testament scripture is about me. I'm fulfilling it. And these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself explained about how it says beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's a lot of books. All the things uh, concerning himself. And so just because Jesus showed up on the scene about 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that's when the gospel story began or anything. Uh, in Revelation 13, it, we're told that the Lamb was slain, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was slain before the foundations of the world. This was always plan A. It wasn't like Jesus shows up, the Jews reject him, and now God has a plan B, and he's going to say, okay, now what do we do? It was always the plan. And so that's why the meta-narrative or overarching theme is, is consistent throughout Scripture. And again, please, if you have questions or comments, raise your hand and just jump in at any point. Okay, I told you uh, before we began this series that it's a little, this is a little bit of a higher level class or course. It's just for fun, but um, you don't have to remember all these things, but some things may stick with you or you know, keep your, get your wheels turning in your mind about thinking about Scripture, about the Lord. And so we're about to dive in a little bit deeper, okay? Are we ready for that? Is that okay? Okay, good. Uh, and I'm going to make sure no one leaves, so I'm going to guard you if you start leaving. <laughs> this is interesting stuff, though, and until you hear these things, you might not understand how Amazing the word, the word of the Lord is. And so it says here, big words, big ideas. So the first word is hermeneutic. Has anyone ever heard of that word hermeneutic? It's uh, what a hermeneutic is. There's another slide about this. It's, it's a way to interpret scripture. So you can have a bad hermeneutic. The word, this word hermeneutic comes from a Greek word. It just means interpret. Okay, so we made an English word and it's called hermeneutic. So it's the way you interpret scripture. You could have a good, a good hermeneutic, or you could have a bad hermeneutic. We want to have a strong hermeneutic, okay? A strong way to interpret Scripture. Because if I'll give you an example of a bad hermeneutic. Um, let's say I'm rifling through Scripture, and I'll do the whole thing where you, you know, fan through the pages, and you flip through, and you just randomly open the page, and you put, close your eyes, and you put your finger down, and you say where it's, you see where it says, uh, and Judas hung himself, okay? And then you close your eyes again, you fan through the pages of the Scripture, and you point your finger down on it. And the next line says, go thou and do the same. <laughs> That's a, it's a bad hermeneutic. It's a bad way to interpret Scripture. You might say, well, what is the Lord's Word telling me today? Uh, that's not how we should do it. There's good ways to do Bible study. And so hermeneutic is just a, a way to interpret the Bible. There's good ones, bad ones. We'll get to some of the examples as we go. Next two terms are, I guess you would say, how, how do they put it? Inextricably linked exegesis and eisegesis. So 
Again, we get a lot of our words from Latin and Greek and older languages. So you can see the prefix here, ex, means out of. We exit, we go out, right? So exegesis means we, we see what's in Scripture and we take what's in there and we pull it out. The meaning that the Spirit inspired the men who wrote the Scripture, we, we take that meaning, we pull it out. Whatever's there, that's what, what it is. By the same token, eisegesis, E-I is a, a preposition meaning into. Eisegesis is when I have a thought and I want to somehow make the word say what I'm thinking. And I put something, a meaning into the word. That's not how we should do it. Because that's now not how it was meant to be read. Does that make sense? One example would be, I want to talk about all this, you know, for this Bible study. I want to really talk about how um, the Packers are the best team ever. Yay. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, right, we have one. But, but I always say, but the Lord has forgiven me for that if, if there's no <laughs> Packer fan. It's an old joke. But. So then I go searching the scriptures, trying to find pieces and parts that will kind of, I can kind of mold together. And somehow, believe it or not, anyone can do this, make the Bible pretty much say what you want it to say. And that's, that's doing dishonor to God's word. You know, uh, somehow I could find somewhere where there's green and somewhere where there's gold and find the word blessed or something and mishmash it up and say, see, there you go. And people do this subtly. I think sometimes they don't know they're doing it. Teachers or, or pastors, they probably don't know they're doing it. But we, uh, one way to really tell a good Bible teacher is to see how they handle the word of God. Because if they, they do it with, with uh, if they hold it in high regard, and they have a lot of respect for it, and they use a good hermeneutic, which I'll give you a few examples later, then you can say, well, he's really doing his homework, and he's, he's having care, and if there's a gray spot, he'll tell you, or you know how it goes. So, but people have agendas, and we're human beings, and so sometimes uh, we just have to always caution for us, am I putting my thoughts into this word and using God's word to say what I'm saying? Because that's eisegesis, and that's a big no-no. We don't want to do that. But it happens all the time, and I think sometimes... Most of the time, I hope, it's just inadvertent. The people that are teaching don't know they're even doing it. So, but that's where we can always check each other. You know, so, and we should do that to keep each other sharp. Next word here is exposition. This word is pretty simple to see. It has the word expose in it. And so uh, good Bible exposition, sometimes we call it expository or expositional. We expose what's in the word. That's just it's a simple term. It's a simple idea. At Christ the Word, we're determined and dedicated to, to base our teaching on expositional teaching. What is in the Word, we bring it out using exegesis. See, there's the two EX meaning out of. What's in the Word, we bring it out and we explain it. That's it. It's nothing special. I'm not helping God's Word or anything. It's all, the power is all in His Word. You know, me as a teacher would just bring it out. Uh, I don't want to put my thoughts into it. I can give commentary and you know, do my best, but, but his word is his word. The text is the text. That's where the authority is and the power is. So exposition, if you hear that word, that's what that means. We just expose what's in the word. Some, some uh, churches, I think the, the majority of churches don't focus on this. Um, it, just, it just happens naturally, but some churches are focused on it because it's like guardrails. We want to make sure we're just always, if we're focused on exposition uh, and expository teaching and preaching, it's guardrails to say, you know, am I staying with the text here or not as I go through life or through our journey together as a church family? Um, 
hopefully some of you would say, I think we're getting way off track here. You know, we're talking about things that aren't even in the Bible or where are you going here? Because it, and then I would say, oh yeah, you're right. <clears throat> I have to get back on track. Because all that stuff doesn't really help if it's just coming from me and my thoughts and my fallen ways. Stay with the text. Start in the text. Stay in the text. That's where the power of, of God is. Okay, these other two are um, anthro. That means man, mankind, like anthropology. It's a study of, uh, of man, mankind. Anthropomorphism. I'll get to what that means in a minute. <clears throat> and anthropopathism. No one's going to remember these words, but I just wanted to mention them because later I'll talk about because they are important, we just don't know the words, but when we have questions later, um, this will be what they're referring to. And I'll show you that in a couple more slides. And it has to also do with this term called condescension of language. Okay, here's some examples. I guess we're just going to go through that. I think this is saying what I just said. So I'll just read through quickly. Hermeneutic, a method of interpreting the Bible. That's a hermeneutic exegesis to interpret a text by way of a thorough analysis of its content. That's exegesis. Eisegesis, reading into the text one's own preconceived ideas about what it means. It's like they say in a Bible study, you don't want to hear the, the question asked, what do you think this, or, or what does this verse mean to you? You just want to have the question, what does this verse mean, period, right? Because we have, what, a dozen people here, and if we said, well, what does this verse mean to you, we're going to have 12 different ideas. What it means, this means different thing to me than it does to you. Well, what does it mean? That's the message of Scripture, right? Uh, the next one is exposition just means explaining the text, exposing the text. Here we go, anthropomorphism, attributing human physical characteristics to God. Like when we say God has, uh, God's hand is on us. Okay, that's anthropomorphism. We're giving a human attribute, a human characteristic to God. God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical hand, but we know what the, the message there is. He cares for us. He makes sure that we're provided for. Our idiom or our, you know, the, the, the tools we use in our language, we just say things like, well, we're in God's hands. We know what that means. We don't really just literally mean he's got physical hands and we're standing in his hand. So we're attributing physical things, physical attributes to God that we know he doesn't have, but we say it because that's how we talk. Some uh, faith systems, like Islam, will, uh, they don't use the Bible, but, but they believe in the Quran. In the Quran, it has some terms about hands of God or the arm of God or these kind of things, the eyes of God. So they say that, well, God has these things. Literally, uh, he has a hand and an, and an eye, and, uh, but we understand, as Christians at least, these are figures of speech. Uh, and we understand the difference between literal things and metaphors, okay? So that's anthropomorphism. Anthropopathism, it's attributing human sensibilities to God. This one's a little more subtle, but let me give you an example. Uh, do you think God is ever surprised at anything? I think he's ever been surprised. Or, or uh, can God laugh? Think about it. Because laugh inherently has an element of surprise to it because you weren't expecting that funny thing to happen and now you're laughed, right? Uh, is he ever scared or, you know, we have these, these different emotions and we have these outbursts. We laugh or we um, get angry. Well, do you think God ever gets angry? In Scripture it says God was angry. 
But there's, uh, if you look at the nature of God and the attributes of God, this falls under this category of, of anthropopathism, which means we're giving, we're saying that God is angry or he, uh, you know, acts like us so that we can understand something about God, that he hates sin. Uh, you know, God's wrath is upon sin uh, until we repent. You know, we have to worry about that. So the way that we feel or act or experience emotions is different than how God would ever do that because he's never surprised. He can never learn anything. He knows everything, past, present, future. Uh, so God experiences these things differently than we do. But all we have is what we know and what we've ever experienced. And so when we say things like we're in God's hands or God was delighted at certain things, we say those things because we aren't God. We don't understand how he understands the world, how he experiences his creation. But we understand how we experience it. And so through the power of the Spirit, the people who wrote the scriptures, uh, they were given the language that we could understand and, and connect with God on some level. God is uh, way above our plane, so he has to condescend to us, and that's where this, this uh, term condescension of language comes in. When you say human sensibility, speaking, you know, we say God speaks to us. Perfect. Right. Well, does God have vocal cords? Right. right? So right. when, yeah. but you get what, do you, what we mean when that's in Scripture and, and we're told that God speaks to us. Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses talks about how uh, long ago in many uh, different ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. So we understand that he's not, you know, blowing air from his lungs through his throat and we're hearing sounds. But we're, we understand that he's communicating something to us, Right. And you just know that because that's how we talk. We understand that. And we also, by the same token, understand he doesn't have a, you know, a vocal voice, right, that we can audibly hear with because there's air being pressed through lungs. We understand that. So this, this phrase, condescension of language, <clears throat> means that God has given us information about himself through the authors of Scripture that we now have as the Bible so that we can understand who he is, his character, what he's like, He's also given us his son in the flesh that walked with us and taught us for three and a half years. And uh, the, the Lord trained up the, the, the disciples and, and they went on to write the rest of the New Testament. And so we have all this special revelation. Remember we talked about special revelation to communicate who he is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen my character, you've seen, you've seen the Father's character. Uh, and so he condescends to us. He, he gives us things in certain ways that we will understand. If you have kids in here and you have to explain to your five-year-old that we're going to go to the doctor and we have to give you a shot. And it's going to hurt, but it's going to help you. You know, there's some way that you would, you know, you bring your language down to their level to let them understand. We're going to go to this place. It's, it's going to hurt a little bit. And I know that, and I want you to know that. It's okay. You know, there's just a lower level of uh, cognition that, we have to condescend to their, lo their level. Same thing with the Lord. I mean, he is infinitely wise and all-knowing, so he gives us communication that we can understand. Okay? Question? Yeah, Leon. If God speaks to Moses, then? Right. This is a microphone. So, so did God speak to Moses? He actually spoke to Moses. Right, and it says that he, 
uh, interacted with him as a man. With light, right? So this is not in my slideshow, but this is a bonus. Okay, so here, this is called, this is called a theophany. Have you ever heard of that term, theophany? So the Old Testament appearances of God, where He speaks as a man, as for one instance to Moses on Mount Sinai, they're called theophanies, and uh, many scholars, and I think this is the prevailing thought right now, and, and has been for some time, is that. Those theophanies where God shows up as a person, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord shows up with two angels. Uh, it looks like three men walking around. Uh, that was the take on that is that the scholars believe, um, and I think it's, it's very credible, uh, that that was Christ in the flesh, incarnated God. God incarnate. Incarnate just means in the flesh, incarnate. Um, and so in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord shows up sometimes, and uh, when, he, when the angel of the Lord came and, and slay, slew 185,000 soldiers in one night, that was the angel of the Lord. Uh, those types of uh, physical appearances of God somehow were, are believed to be the pre-incarnated Christ walking in the Old Testament. So because the Lord says, or God says to the Lord, no one can see God and live, right? Um, but Moses says, or the Lord says to Moses, I'll pass before you and hide you in the cleft of the rock. You can see my back parts and my glory pass before you. So he does that. Uh, but then again, he says, well, how does he talk with him like a man? Um, we believe God is three in one, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is three persons in one God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. So people walked and talked with Christ. Well, is he God? He's God the Son. No one can see God the Father. He's Spirit. And no one can see the Holy Spirit because he's spirit. But we can see Christ incarnated. And so that's the, the, the deity uh, that we have seen in the flesh. You know, John talks about it a lot. You know, we write these things because we have experienced and tasted and felt these things. And we write to, to you that so you'll believe. So uh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, would be the one that we could physically see and talk with and sit with and eat with. And so I think that's what, uh, does that touch on your question or answer yeah. that? Okay. So that's called a theophany. Um, a Christophany, actually. Christophany. Yep, let me get this. I was reading my articles of prayer this morning, and I came across, and it's in the Lord's Prayer, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, on earth as it is in heaven. And so... Uh, he does his will on earth, and we pray that it's done, or in heaven and on earth, but we pray for his will. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit, too, is to pray according to your will, according to your spirit. What would you have me do here? Go, what do you want me to do? What should I do? Because I really want to, and then you go off, uh, you pray for things that aren't according to his will. Well, he's, is he going to give you that? He might give you uh, to learn a lesson, but, but we always pray for God's will to be done. Okay. Next slide. Have a good hermeneutic. Okay, here's some examples of different hermeneutics, different ways to interpret the scripture. Uh, the first is literal slash historical. Um, some would throw in grammatical, and some would throw in redemptive. Okay, so I'll get to that. Uh, literal. That means you take what the words are and what the meanings are, and that's part of how you interpret scripture. That's naturally what we do when we read anyway. Uh, and so when we say literal... What we don't want to um, have it mean is 
when John says that Jesus is a gate or a door. When he says, I'm the door. Well, we understand he's not a wooden door, right? We get the fact that that's a metaphor. You say, well, do you take the Bible literally? Well, you should say, what do you mean by literally? Because according to the literature is what we should mean by that. We understand that there are metaphors. A metaphor is something if I say, uh, you know, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, is he a light bulb? No, we get the fact that he is illuminating us with knowledge and, and wisdom. He's not a door. The Bible says, I'm a, he says, I'm a door. Uh, we get the fact that that's a metaphor. If you say, I am like something, that's a simile. These are all parts, of people, when people try to trip you up and say, well, do you believe the Bible literally? What they're trying to catch you on, if they're unbelievers and they want to trip you up, is things like this. But even that person understands that we use metaphors, we use figures of speech. So yes, we believe the Bible literature, or literally, if we mean according to the literature. Okay, so historical. <clears throat> also a big deal because we have to understand the history, if we really want to, uh, get into, you know, when were these things done? When were they said? They use different ways of speaking in, in the past than they do today. They use different words. Uh, so historically, languages change a little bit. And if you have a study Bible, a lot of times it'll explain to you um, what is meant. You know, there's figures of speech. If I say to you, uh, go take a hike, I mean, you know what I mean. And you know what I don't mean. I don't actually mean go hiking. I just mean go away. I don't want you around me. You understand that. That's, that's a, a figure of speech. And so if we, if we take those, and again, in study Bibles, they'll say this a lot. Um, they'll say, you know, in the first century, this was uh, taken to mean that. But if you don't have those little clues, you might be stuck with a strange saying and you won't understand because you don't know the history. Uh, so that's the plain meaning. Uh, literal, historical. Now, grammatical kind of is the same thing as literal. It's not up here, but there's different grammar, which is what gets, gets to be very important if you're looking at uh, the nuances of, if you're at a point in the scripture where you're, where you're touching on a, a certain part of theology, and let's say it's salvation, uh, it's pretty important. And if you want to know, well, is this, and you realize, well, this is a, a past tense verb or a future tense or something like that. It's grammatical. Again, study Bibles help along, and there's different websites I'll get to at the way end if you want to uh, study a little bit more in that way. But it, all these things are important. So literal, historical, grammatical. Uh, the most important, I think, would be related to that meta-narrative idea, redemptive. So if you have a redemptive hermeneutic, a redemptive way of looking at Scripture and interpreting it, you'll always be asking the question, Literal, what does it say? When was it said? Those kind of things. <clears throat> um, and then how does this relate to the, the overarching theme of redemption? It's, it's a redemptive, redemptive hermeneutic, a redemptive way to look at Scripture. So you always ask yourself, if I'm reading a, a passage in the Song of Solomon or Genesis or Revelation, the question, if I have as a, my foundation, is redemptive uh, way to interpret the Bible would be, where does Jesus fit in here? Why is this in the Bible? How does this relate to that overarching theme of God's redemption of his people? Uh, so that's a good hermeneutic to have. Look at those things. Uh, so now there's some different, I guess, sketchy ones you could say, or, or not, not complete. They're certainly good, but they're, they're incomplete. If you have a moral hermeneutic, where everything's about moralism, and you're finding uh, how to live everywhere in Scripture... There's places for that, but there's other places where it just talks about historical events that happened. It doesn't mean we should act like Delilah and cut off our husband's hair. 
That's not a moral thing, right? It's just a historical thing that happened. Uh, allegorical, always looking for the deeper meaning or the really, really deeper meaning. Uh, you know, take any, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. You could say, well, uh, boy, how many, how many lions were there? Were, you know, were there male or female or what were they doing? You know, you can go way too far and it was never meant for that, right? So it's just, you can look too deep sometimes where you're missing the point of the whole passage. Uh, again, these are good to have, you know, in your toolkit, but if you're only doing it this way, you're missing so much. Uh, anagogical, these are the, the kind of way out there things. Like, the, remember the, the Bible codes books back, I guess, 20 years ago? People took the, the Hebrew scriptures and were looking through how many different times uh, different Hebrew letters were showing up, and then they would find, like, the Twin Towers in there and, you know, Osama bin Laden's name or something. This is all, uh, in my opinion, it's a waste of time, and it's very distracting from the gospel message of Scripture, looking for uh, future events like omens almost out of the Hebrew text. Yes, and, and even just to touch on that uh, Bible code thing for a while, does anyone remember that, though, the Bible codes things? Um, there's different Hebrew texts that made up the, the Hebrew Scriptures. So even if they broke it all down and they had these big graphs, all you had to say was, well, I don't use that, that uh, bank of Hebrew scriptures. I use this one, and all the words are different uh, or set up a little differently. There's Aramaic, there's Hebrew, there's even Greek translations of the Hebrew. And so it's just not very reliable, and it's, it's very mysterious and uh, mystical. And when we get into the secret knowledge where people say, well, I have the real secrets of Christianity and you don't, that's Gnosticism, and that, that's, uh, it's not healthy. It's bad. It's like a cultish thing. I have the true meaning, and you don't, and so you're down here, and I'm, you know, that's, you're puffing yourself up, and, and that's prideful, and God doesn't like that. So this goes back to the, the, uh, the point I made, I think the first week, about how simple Scripture is. It's simple. Remember the term for that? The perspicuity of Scripture? It's very simple. It's plain meaning, the plenary meaning, they call it, of the text is easy to understand for a child. We don't have to make it so mystical and secretive, and, and that's just, there's no room for that. Uh, Midrash, this is really interesting, types and shadows. The first century Near East uh, people had a different way of thinking than us Westerners in the 21st century. Western thought is pretty linear. You know, this happens, then that happens, and this happens, and that's your story. Eastern thought is circular. There, there's cycles, a lot of cycles. This happens again, and it happens again, and it all happened again. The Near East, uh, in you know, the Bible areas, uh, geographically, they have something called Midrash where it's kind of like a, a slinky or a spring where you think of a spring and you pull it out. So it kind of like loops over here and it loops over here and then it goes over here. So it's kind of linear, but it's kind of circular. It's kind of in the middle. And this is called Midrash, and it has to do with types and shadows. And I think I have some, on the next slides, some examples of types and shadows. I do, but not yet. So... This is a, uh, an important thing. You know what types and shadows are? Have you heard this at all? Uh, one example is, I guess to define it, a type would be like Noah's Ark. Okay, so this is a, pre, uh, a prefigure of something that will happen in the future and has a, a spiritual meaning later. Usually um, fulfilled in Christ, in the life of Christ, or something having to do with salvation. So it's a, it's a picture of something that's coming. Noah's Ark is a type of salvation. 
because when people enter the ark, they're taken through a big storm, and then they come out and they're saved, right? So, um, so that's a type. The anti-type, I wish it was the other way around, but the anti-type is the thing it's pointing to, which would be salvation. Christ came, we're in Christ, and he's, we're saved because of that. Uh, one example would be if I take a trip to Disney World in Florida. I have a map of Disney World, and I have signs along the way to get to Disney World. Those would be types. Okay, I have the map. I have pictures of Mickey Mouse. I'm going down the highway to get to Disney World. Now, when I get to Disney World, that's the anti-type. That's the fulfillment. That's the real thing. So I put all the maps away and the pictures away because I'm there now. Uh, the Feast of Leviticus 23, the Passover. Let's just take that. Uh, why do they do all those things? Why did the Lord say, well, take you know, uh, a lamb, keep in your house for four days, get to know it a little bit, and then slaughter the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and then put the blood over your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes by, uh, your family will be spared the death of your firstborn. Uh, and the, the Israelite people did that who believed that God's word would be, come true, and their firstborns were saved. Well, why was their firstborn saved for the people that put the blood on the the door. It was because, uh, not, uh, not because there was blood on the door. It was their faith in God's promise that if they did that, their firstborn would be saved. They believed God. That's the anti-type. That's faith. The type is when we believe in Christ who shed his blood, the Lamb of God. And Paul says, you know, he's the Lamb of God. He's our Lamb, our Passover Lamb. He's connecting the two, like those arcs back we saw the, the week one. So that's types and shadows. The type and shadow of Christ is the ark or the Passover lamb pointing to Christ. So I'll give you some examples as we go along. But this happens a lot in Scripture. And so that's Midrash. Similar things happening over and over that point to something else, a spiritual truth later. A couple other uh, hermeneutic ways to uh, interpret Scripture. Literal, something called biblicism or letterism is how is people that would take and this is very rare but people do this if you take the words of scripture literally uh like where the bible says it doesn't say the earth is flat but it says things like the earth has pillars or that it has four corners uh the four winds of the earth uh people will kind of latch onto these things and say it says it right there in black and white the letters the text is there you know there are pillars of the earth where are these pillars how big are they you know that kind of thing uh it, it does, it's not according to the literature. I mean, psalm, look where it's located, the psalms. That's uh, it's poetry. It's a song. Or uh, let's see, there's two psalms up there. Um, but if we can't go too literal because then we'd think that, again, the Lord Jesus is a gate. And we understand it's not, it's not that way. Allegorical, another uh, one that's good, but it's not... If you're only focusing on allegories, you're going to miss out on a lot. Over-spiritualizing everything. You don't want to overdo it in any of these particular areas. Um, another example, I guess, would just be David and Goliath. They say, well, what's your Goliath? It's over-allegorizing. The point is not about, I'm David, I'm you know, conquering my giants. The point is, David is a type of Christ. And Goliath is a type of sin. Uh, it's pointing to the fact that the story is about <clears throat> how David, David 
um, conquers sin or conquers Goliath and Christ, how Christ conquers the unbeatable enemy. And we're the afraid and scared Israelites over on the on the hill over here that don't want to get involved. We can't we can't beat Goliath. We can't beat our sin. We can't overcome that. But David is a type of Christ there. Christ is uh, conquering our our sin. Okay, there's a question. So I've heard that a lot, but isn't that like how sometimes some people will try to make the Bible about themselves instead of about Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like you're looking ahead on our next point, which is, this is a, a term that's very new, but it's very accurate. It's called Jesus. Anyone want to take a guess about what Jesus means? Yeah, that you see the word narcissist in there? Narcissist was a Greek, it was a Greek myth. His name was Narcissus, and he loved him. He was in love with the reflection of himself in the water, and so that's how we understand this term, narcissist. So, Narcissus means you make the Bible all about you. It's about me. I'm David. Why don't you say I'm Goliath in that story? Why do you pick David? You pick all the heroes, and it's about you. Because it's not about you. It's about. It's for you. But we're not in Scripture. You know, Nate Prazu is not in the Bible. And, and when, when, he had, when the Holy Spirit had Paul write his letters, he wasn't writing to me personally. Now, I can gain from all the words in Scripture, but I can't lift myself up so high to say that, no, I, it's about me, it's in my Scripture. This is about my life right now. Now, if they're historical events, we have to understand they're just telling us about things that had happened. In the, in the epistles where they're telling us how to live, you know, be angry and, and do not sin, or don't let the sun go down in your anger. Those are obviously principles I can live with today and I can improve my life with today. But we have to understand what's the difference. So Jesus is where people can take any passage of Scripture and say, where are you in this? Where are you in this story? And it's dangerous because you're not in the story. So you're eisegeting, you're putting yourself into the Scripture, and we don't want to do that. Because then it's going to make, we're going to see it from a completely wrong perspective. It's dangerous. You might get a puffed up head. You're always going to pick that you're the hero in the story. You know, see what I'm saying? Not how it's supposed to be. So it's not about you. It's for you. Okay. So if we get that straight, we'd be on a good path. Here's some examples of types of shadows. The New Testament is in, here's a good, a good thing to remember. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. Okay. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it one more time. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. What does that mean? It means that when Christ came, told the Pharisees in John 5, all those scriptures you're reading are about me. He's saying, I'm revealing what the Old Testament means. And in the Old Testament, things like um, all the... The Levitical feasts, you know, th- these people did these things for 1,500 or more years. They had the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, Pen- the Feast of the, the, there's seven of them, um, the Festival of Booths and, and uh, what's the, other? I mean, there, there's just all these feasts, Passover, Booths, Pentecost, but all those feasts pointed to Christ, but it was hidden back then. They just did this because they were being obedient to the Lord. They were, they were doing these festivals. But when Christ came, he fulfilled those feasts. And he's, he's telling them, this is, 
this is about me. You know, they have the uh, unleavened bread at the Seder meal, and they have the different little things. They're all pointing to Jesus. Unleavened bread signifies uh, sin, a sinless life. Okay, in the Jewish culture, you'd learn these things. And so once he came, the Jewish people's eyes should have been blasted wide open, like, oh my goodness, you, you are the Christ. You've done this, and you fulfilled that, and, you know, all the way through the, from the prophecies and everything. A lot of them didn't see it, but he was the fulfillment of all those things. So the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So that whenever we read Old Testament passages, we, we want to say, how does, the, how does the New Testament explain this? How, what does this mean in light of the New Testament? Now that we know about Christ and his life and death and resurrection, what does this mean in the Old Testament? Uh, so here we go, Leviticus 23, that's where the Lord appointed times were, the different feasts are laid out. A type here is just, when I mention types and shadows, a type is a preordained representation uh, which certain persons, events, and institutions of the Old Testament bear to corresponding persons, events, and institutions in the New. It's things that are a picture of something in the New Testament. So the types are in the Old Testament pointing to something in the New. And it's usually about, like I said, Jesus or something he did, something important like that. Here's some examples. Christ, Paul says, is our Passover lamb. So when the Jews heard that Christ is our Passover lamb, they understood, oh, that's the lamb that we, that we uh, would sacrifice. And, you know, we were given um, salvation of our firstborn son. You know, that was a big deal. That was right before... Uh, they, they came out of Egypt. He gave us freedom. He set us free. He saved us, our entire people, our entire nation. Noah's Ark, another type of salvation. Paul says that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. So when people were getting into the ark, were they saved? When the door was closed, before the rains, were they saved during the rain? Were they saved when they got out of the boat? It's a type. It's a representation. Rahab's scarlet cord, remember this story. <clears throat> when the spies went into Egypt and or went into the promised land and to Canaan, and they found Rahab, uh, they said, she said, I'll put a scarlet cord out of my window. And so when you come back and raid the city, you'll know that's my place and, and to keep us safe. And so they said, okay, whoever's in your house will be saved. And that's what happened. It's a type. The scarlet cord, scarlet represents the blood of Christ. And whoever's in that room where the scarlet cord hangs was saved from that destruction. You see how the types and shadows work? There's connections here about spiritual things in the New Testament having different pictures in the Old. The serpent in the wilderness, another one. Here's a picture. <clears throat> As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, understood when... The serpent in the wilderness was, was lifted up. The Israelites were getting bitten by snakes, and they were dying, and they were getting sick, and it, it, it was not a good time. So they said, you know, talk to the Lord, Moses, and help, have us fix this. What, what can we do? So the Lord told Moses, take a bronze serpent, make a, a serpent out of bronze, and put it up on a, a pole. And when they looked at the serpent, the people that would look at this serpent would be healed, and they did. They were and the serpent represents, of course, we understand that it represents sin. But what Christ did on the cross was he became sin on the cross. And the fact that it was a bronze serpent was more significant to these people because it meant 
going through fire, and it meant judgment. So this picture that happened, again, 1,500 years or more before Christ came, of a serpent, a bronze serpent on a, a wooden pole, when Christ came and he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw my, all men unto me, he was lifted up, and his death on the cross came after he became sin, Paul says. He became sin who knew no sin. And he paid the price. The judgment was paid on a cross, just like the bronze serpent. So Nicodemus, in his mind, was seeing this, and he was getting it. Uh, Jesus was telling him. So that's how the Lord is making p- the connections in people's minds. He's giving them these pictures for story for generations and centuries and ingraining these ideas in the, in the Israelites' minds so that when the antitype, the, the, when Jesus finally comes, they'll, like the light switch will go on. And they'll say, wait a second, he's our Passover lamb? I get what that means. Wait a second, he's like the bronze serpent being lifted up? I get what that means. Even if we in our first, 21st century uh, minds don't get that. They did get it. And a lot of them rejected him still. Okay, I guess we're going to end there for tonight. It's 7.45. Before we do, uh, any questions or comments? We're going to have to wrap this up next week. hope that's okay. But that'll be good because we'll finish up next week with Scripture unveiled, and then the next week we'll have off because uh, the people here at Highview have their Christmas party that Tuesday night on the, on the 13th or the 12th. 12. The 12th. 12. Yeah, you know, because you're going to be here probably. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so we'll wrap this series up next week, have a week off, and then get back into uh, a different Bible study series. Question here, yeah. Um, if you want to just let everyone then know that we're Yeah, we're going to have our Christmas party from, for Christ the Word Church here in this building, in this room, on December 10th, Sunday. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be great. So. Invite everyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. So invite any friends. You are all welcome to come. Anyone in this building or facility, and so and all you guys too. Invite your friends, family. We want to invite a lot of people, and have a lot more fun. Yeah. No. So, well. Yeah. We'll close in prayer, and then we'll wait for next week. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we're so thankful just to be here and uh, with friends and family members, and we're all a spiritual family when we gather in your name. So help us, Lord, as we go forward, and, and there's so much information here, but uh, when we look at your word and we look uh, at what you've given us to remember you by, we just understand that it's so deep, and, uh, but that it's meaningful. It's not just a dusty old book that you've given us. Uh, these words are living and active, so I pray that through the Spirit, you can show us how we should live now that we know these things. Uh, to be uh, better witnesses for you and have more fortified, strong faith as we go through our life and deal with our struggles. Uh, We pray that you make our yoke easy and our burden light just because you're carrying us and you're carrying our burdens for us. So bless us as we go. Keep us healthy and safe this holiday season as we celebrate Christmas in about a month. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.